Hi, everyone. You're watching episode 17 of the Life of Gem live video podcast. This is going to be a very special episode with my amazing guest who will bring in shortly, Hong Mi Basri, the author of The Memoir Behind the Red Curtain. Check this out. Isn't that beautiful? We'll be giving away a copy later, so stay tuned. This is being filmed live from my house in the Inland Empire. We'll be back in the studio soon. We have my rock star producer from Raghouse Media, April Duran, here. So this show is going to be about writing one's history and also dealing with traumatic events. Um, first, I'm going to read an essay, a very short excerpt of an essay of mine called Dad's Voice. And the reason I chose this specific piece was because my guest, Hong Mi, writes masterfully about her parents, especially her father. So let's do this really quick. Here's my story, a piece of it from my memoir, Dad's Voice. Dad's Voice. You could hear Montana in his voice. Dad's voice was gentle and gruff at the same time. Dad's voice sounded like fishing in fresh lakes, ice-cold beer, country music, and snowy mountains. It's been more than a decade since my father died, and the only thing I hear when I think of him is his voice saying my name and calling out his favorite phrase, girls, where are you? He always called me and my sisters his girls. He loved us fiercely. He was overprotective, more maternal than paternal. Dad had lost a daughter, and he said he was never going to lose us. When he was drunk, he used to cry and say, I would never leave your mom or you girls. He would point out the blue angel tattoo on his arm and say, that's my daughter, Debbie. She died when she was a toddler. Dad was a happy drunk. And he would put on a laser disc movie and make us homemade popcorn, the margarine seeping through the Stater Brothers bags. Dad loved him a drive-in. He loved horror, science fiction, the Gene Wilder movies with Richard Pryor, and the Herbie the Love Bug movies. He took me to see the Bad News Bears, and he took me and my sisters to see Little Darlings. And he suffered through it, closing his eyes and covering his ears. Music also moved my dad the same way it moves me. His musical loves were Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, Kenny Rogers, Willie Nelson, and being a true feminist in his musical tastes, Loretta Lynn, Dolly Parton, Dolly Parton, and Patsy Cline. There was always music playing in my house, and he had a way about him in his jeans and his cowboy shirt, all held together by his big John belt buckle. He was never intimidated by anyone. When I was a little girl, I would remember how embarrassed I would get because he would just walk up to someone and shake their hand. And people gravitated towards him. He had the best laugh. He would guffaw, slap his leg, take out his teeth to make you laugh and roll his eyes. The depression came later. When he was older, and beaten down by life's tragedies and disappointments and deaths. My older half-sister, Barbara, died when we were in high school. She was killed in a car accident. And I came home from high school, and Dad locked himself in the bathroom with a gun. 
Thankfully, my father did not kill himself that day, but I think that's when his depression really began. His voice changed. Dad's new voice still sounded like Montana, but it was slower and sadder. It was sounded like old whiskey in a bottle, empty country roads, a dried up lake, lonely truck stops and honky tonks, like the saddest country song you had ever heard. Dad was never the same. That's the part of my story. It's a little melancholy, but what's funny about it is that my producer April just got back from Montana and I had forgotten about that when I uh, chose that story. So Montana, I was born there. Now, let me introduce my amazing guest. I'm so honored to have her. Born and raised in Saigon, Vietnam, Hong Mi Bazrai is fluent in Vietnamese and French. She is the author of the epic memoir, Behind the Red Curtain, published by Los Nietos Press. Hong Mi had a love of literature and languages from a very young age. She studied in Belgium for two years and again was transplanted to Southern California at the age of 22. She, put, she picked up English to survive in her adopted country. She holds a bachelor's of science degree in chemical engineering and an informal degree in self-taught English. Hong Mi is the mother of three Indian Vietnamese American children in a multicultural language household that is infused with music. Also a poet, Hong Mi's writings can be found in Eastlet Literary Journal, the 2011 Writing from Inlandia Anthology, in the East Jasmine Review, and in the Invisible Memoirs, Lionhearted. She is a member of the Writers Club of Whittier. Welcome, Hong Mi. So honored to have you. Yay! Hi. <laughs> you guys all see me? Thank you, Juanita, for that wonderful introduction. <laughs> Thank you, April, the, for standing behind us and help with the uh, technical part. Thank you, all Aww. my audience and Juanita audience in the background. Yes, Welcome. thank you. And welcome. Now, Hong Mi, I, I just finished your memoir straight through. I had started it, I told you, then I read it again straight through for three days, three or four days it took me. I was riveted. Your memoir, Behind the Red Curtain, published by Los Nietos Press, is astounding. It's, it's a memoir about resilience. And you and I have known each other uh, through Inlandia for about a decade. And... What started the writing process? And just so the readers know, this is a book about um, Hong Mi's young adulthood growing up in South Vietnam when it fell to communist rule. Is that right, Hong Mi? That's correct. In 1975. How old were you when they when the Viet Cong took over? I turned uh, 13 years old in March, and that event happened in April 1975. So what started the whole writing process for you? How old were you when you started writing this? Oh, my God. How old was I? I think I was maybe 35 years old. I already had my second child. So that's how I try to remember it. 
And as I recall, it started with a email exchange with my siblings wow. at the time uh, visiting Paris, France for a uh, cousin's wedding. And uh, I was stuck at home because I homeschooled my second boy. And uh, it was during that time that, that I had to do a lot of English writing and a lot of research uh, because I have to prepare the independent studies uh, curriculum for my uh, boy. And and a question came and I answer and then I write and they ask and then I keep writing um, about uh, what had happened because uh, meeting, you know, how meeting relatives and question came and they did not know because they were overseas when the event uh, that I described in Behind the Red Curtain happened. Uh, and so emails after email, it wow. turned into something just like chapters in a book. And I said, here goes. The books that I've been wanting to write uh, is slowly taking shape. That's interesting. You know, I really did find um, the fact that a couple of your siblings had already immigrated to both France and the United States before the Viet Cong took over and communist rule um, took over and your family was imprisoned. But what's interesting about you writing this with, you know, your siblings, it shows how um, important like family history is. Right. And so um, I find that fascinating. And I am wearing a Paris France dress in your honor. Um, there's little Eiffel towers on here. Oh, wow. <laughs> and when, can I interrupt you here to say that both of us are wearing orange without, uh, without, uh, prepar like, uh, preparation beforehand. And we are actually wearing it for, uh, no gun violence. So yeah. I'm so happy that we are doing this. <laughs> I am so happy. I'm so, I mean, I just find you such an inspiration and that resilience that you showed as a young woman, um, what was that like? Um, you can tell our readers a little bit of context, but just so they know, your family was attempting to escape. You grew up relatively privileged, um, and your family was trying to escape the communist rule and tried over and over again and kept getting caught and imprisoned. What was that like as a young woman to be in a Vietnam South, South Vietnam prison? Um, well, uh, I don't know if we call it uh, resilience or, or just plain survival. Mm -hmm. You were thrown into a turmoil and you just tried your best, uh, to survive. And I was uh, lucky that I was not yet adult and, uh, I just stay behind and, uh, watch my parents and, um, follow up with, uh, their footstep and just keep quiet. At the time, the best policies is to do not know anything, um, to not too much ask too much questions and just keep uh, silent. Uh, so um, we didn't have to do anything. We just have to survive. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. It's not about resilience or anything. It's survival. You're trying to survive this relatively long period. I mean, you were there for... It was it six or seven years during this time that all of this was going on. It was it was pretty long, right? Yes, the, the uh, whole uh, book behind the record, and it was about the seven years under communism for our family. Wow! And so you were thirteen, yeah. 
And um, for people who haven't read the book, one of the most astounding chapters is towards the end when you're 19 years old and um, your family, you and your mom and your family are imprisoned once again. And then your mom gets out and it's you alone for almost a year in this prison. I mean, I was just, I couldn't put the book down. And um, we talked about it off air, but you really did not know when you were going to get out. Is that right? There was no sentence. You didn't, there was no end date. At that time, no one, and that, there were a lot of people thrown into prison uh, left and right, and all the ex-army officers and soldiers and whoever had anything to do with the previous government was thrown into concentration camp without wow. a word of warning and without uh, forewarning and uh, the Family back home did not know where they were brought to, and nobody has any kind of sentence because there was no lawyers and no uh, court. Uh, it was a lot of the jungle that was being applied to the population. Wow. And then um, eventually you do end up, your family ends up escaping to, is it to France? Was it to Belgium? Well, we just escaped. There was no direct, uh, the closest uh, across the ocean was Thailand. Okay. And that was a goal. But wherever the water bring the uh, boat people, they will follow the waves and follow where it, it will bring them. And, you know, I can hear your book is written so beautifully. It's so lyrical. It's so poetic. Um how did you find that voice of your 13 to 20 year old self? How did you, because I myself, you know, I write memoirs well in the same years I write from age five to age 18, my memoir is, and it also took me almost 15 years to write like yours did, but how did you recreate or conjure up that voice? It's really a character, right? You're no longer young Hong me. It's much later. What was that process like for you? Uh, the uh, young voice had always been inside me and longed to speak of her experience. Uh, I did not have to seek her. Um, she just waited for the right moment to break out uh, through me. And so um, even until uh, this minute, my husband always told me that I've never gone out of my teenage years. And I, <laughs> and I think that I am still trying to recapture those uh, stolen years um, uh, and still still uh, have that uh, dream and hope and happiness of a little 13 years old uh, child. And that is uh, what carried me through uh, until today. So no, it was not at all hard to just settle uh, uh, in to that voice at all. You know, um, I got a little teary eyed when you said that, because my husband says the same thing that I'm kind of still a teenager. And I myself had a, um, a lot of depression in my high school years. And I too think I'm trying to recapture that, but I went through none, not, not even a, a little bit of the trauma that you had to deal with. And I just find you so inspirational and speaking of inspirational, your publisher of Los Nietos, Frank Kearns, is, he just made a comment. And he said, one of the most amazing aspects of Hong Mi's book is the understanding and empathy that she shows to others in her story. 
including those in the notorious octagonal oven. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, if you, if you're comfortable talking about it, I know it's a lot of trauma. Um, well, I was uh, thrown into that prison toward uh, the last of our attempt. And uh, I was at the time 18 years old. But uh, up to the moment of the interrogation, I had declared myself to be 16 because people under age would uh, be forgiven to go home early. That's what we were told. And that's what we have been doing, uh, that we had been doing for all the other trips. So I, but in that prison, um, it was not like any other prisons that we had been. It was a true um, brick and mortal and bars, heavy bars and gates after gates after gates with people in chains, with true criminals locked in uh, with us who are civilians. Um, there, oh, there were in that, uh, there were a lot of people uh, in that time thrown into prison um, trying to escape the country. So usually we were put together and fill this room by the kind of people that we uh, were, not with criminals. But in that prisons, we were with criminals. And um, I was lucky that the few first months, I believe it was uh, about three months, my mom uh, was with me. And um, yes, so uh, it was, we were locked at first in in hallways because there were no, not enough rooms uh, inside the the real uh, prison jail, inside the real jail to contain all of us. And in that hallways, um, young mothers with children would be slowly uh, be given uh, freedom and the rest would slowly uh, be uh, moved to the true uh, jail room. And uh, yeah, yes. you know what I found uh, fascinating about that um, latter half, latter part of your story is that you told the gentleman that interrogated you you were eighteen because he seemed kind, right? Yes. And um, so you almost made an admission against your own interest, and it was only because he was such a like more empathetic interviewer interrogating you. But then you make this admission that you're 18, which actually harms you. So you don't get out as soon. But when your mom gets out and in every prison um, that you all were in, it seemed like once one person got out, they would bring back food because the rations were very small and uh, it, they were almost not livable. Is that right? How much food you were given? Correct. Uh, there was uh, food in the prison without the additional uh, help from outside would be a starving ration and not nutritional enough to keep you healthy. So if you were uh, inside for uh, of more than maybe more than a few months, you would wow. slowly uh, suffer from malnutrition and started. It started with the beginning was uh, to break out in rashes. And then slowly you lose your hairs and, you know, your teeth and all that. So the first thing that anybody um, can help a relative inside uh, the prisons or concentration camp is to send uh, food, meat, uh, meat, stew meat, uh, dry meat, um, you know, uh, all sugars, all the added uh 
food that the prison do not uh, did not give you. And usually, what you had is just uh, soupy rice and a few grain of salt. Oh, how awful! And then you had grown up um, to change topics a little bit. Um, your mom was a pharmacist before um, South Vietnam fell. Um, your family grew up relatively, I guess you'd call it privileged. I love the way you acknowledge that. You kind of show how um, your family fell so hard economically because you were somewhat privileged. Was that a goal of yours to try to capture that um, loss of economic privilege in a way? And not that you were super privileged, not like you all were rich, but you had some money, you had some status, your mom had a business, she was very resourceful, you had music and culture. Um, was that a goal of yours to capture that, that loss? Um, I did not set out to portray about that privileged uh, childhood because I did not even know that I was privileged until I was thrown into the same circle with others different than me. Um, so, but as I, as I wrote my book and I have to put my little story in context uh, of the history, uh, it did strike me that I was, I had a very, very unique point of view, uh, which is that of a well-sheltered, uh, well uh taken care of girl uh, mm -hmm. forced suddenly uh, into the turmoil of life, uh, into a kind of uh, home, in, in kind of kind of uh, situation uh, with uh, different uh, society. Um, uh, she has to go through periods of uh, homelessness and periods of uh, imprisonment, uh, bouts of hunger, in the in the jail and rub shoulders with all uh, kind of people, and um, but she had to slept with even uh, as I have told you in the orthogonal oven. She slept with uh, murderers. Uh, she shared her life with uh, the people uh, that but that before she would consider beneath her. Wow! And uh, yet. In doing so, she realized that she maybe she might be more educated, but not smarter, nor not more talented, and uh, she was not actually uh, different from those people at all. Um, and that's when I I realized that that transformation in my narrator is uh, something I need to bring out uh, that mm -hmm. she uh, from uh, well-to-do to poor, from well-shelter to prisoner, um, had that force um, change had completely changed her worldview until today. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I really got that. I really got that theme from it. And I, it was so profound to me, that fall, but not really a fall in a way, like you said, it was a learning experience. You yes. learned that you were no different from anyone else and that, you know, you could show empathy to others. Do you mind reading a piece of your work right now, just so our audience can get a flavor before we go on with the interview? Um, 
however long you want to read. Um, we're going to put the camera straight on you. So take your time, get your stuff ready. Um, so whenever you're ready. So everyone, this is Hong Mi reading from her memoir, Behind the Red Curtain. And you can give some context if you'd like. Okay. Uh, yes, I would like to speak to my audience about um, this chapter because without introducing it, uh, we are right into the, the middle of the book and you will not uh, understand it. Uh, this is, I have chosen chapter uh, 20 about uh, our first uh, escape. Um, and uh, in this escape, my dad uh, was the organizer, uh, organizer and uh, that you will hear a lot of Vietnamese names. Those were the people who uh, were in the same escape party with our family. And uh, in this little excerpt, uh, taken from this chapter, uh, I described the morning after uh, when I arrived to that uh, designated house. Uh, I had uh, been forced to travel alone uh, uh, separately from my family uh, because they we could not find enough uh, boarding passes for the for the same bus. So I uh, came down to a home. Uh, with another adult woman uh, alone. And this is the morning after I woke up. Uh, the next day, I woke to a glorious morning full of sunshine. The wretch outfit that I had washed and hung out to dry in the bathroom stall had been moved outdoors. It was dancing joyously now. And it waved to me as if I was the one who needed to be brought back. I was told to change quickly so that we could rejoin the rest of the group. We were led on foot through an endless rice field. In the middle of this leafy ocean stood a small thatch hut. There, I rejoined my mother and siblings in a solemn atmosphere. Uncle Tang was fussing about something. Mrs. Duet questioned mom softly about the details of her trip. Through mom's words, I learned that dad had been captured midway to Hatien and led to the local police station to be questioned. For the sake of the whole group, dad did not show any resistance and immediately followed the order to step down from the bus. He was last seen being escorted at gunpoint toward the village. Uncle Tang, listening in, interrupted. Did you see him? Dressed up all black like a peasant. He waited for no reply and continued. But underneath, he wore shiny leather shoes, punching his words to give full impact. Mr. Twitch shook his head, clucked his tongue. He still had his gold Omega watch on his wrist and a gold pen in his pocket. A gold pen. Somebody else added. He stuck out like a sore thumb. Of course they would notice him. Mom's face was drained, but her eyes were intense. Fierceness burned its way through. Calmly, she said, now I need to to decide. I don't know if we should continue with you all or return home to wait for Angkor's news. 
Uncle Thanks advised. I think you should continue. We've come this far. He will find a way to follow. He will definitely join you and the kids in a couple of months. It will be easier for him to take care of himself alone without a family. Miss, Mrs. Zuet's voice rose. Her words well measured. In my opinion, you should go back, but let us take the children along. They will be fine with the group. Your will return for your husband. They spoke under their breath, but the air was dense with the intensity of their collective emotions. There was a long silence while mom debated internally. Her eyes closed. When she finally returned, her eye contact to the many worried faces around her. Her voice cracked. I'll stay back with my children. We'll go on the next boat. It was that resolute, short and clear. No one stepped in to try to convince her otherwise. Her determination was at once respected. The group split that night. We returned on a bus the following day. Mom went back to the village's neighboring Hatin, searching for dad. Patiently, she visited each detention center to inquire for her husband. She found him this way. At each place that she visited, she sent in a roll of sticky rice with that name on it. In the roll, she inserted a small note. If no recipient were present inside, the roll would be returned. She traveled around, a desperate wife tyrannized by love, braving insolent guards and pushing aside all doubts. Then one day, oh joy, her role went in without being returned. She inquired after it. She said she needed it back because it was a mistake that she sent it there. The guards insisted that the roll was sent rightly to its recipient. To prove their point, they escorted that out, a haggard man with twinkling eyes. Mom had found her husband. He then knew she had stayed back for him, teetered to him by her intense love, which hell could not distinguish. Months later, Mom told Ansel about what had happened to Dad. When she found him, He was in a high-security prison. The guard, a southern youngster, merely 16 or 17, told mom while shoving the private money quickly into his pants pocket. Your husband looks docile. We did not think him risky and were self-handling him until all of a sudden he poked away and dashed off. He did not run fast, so we caught up with him. But the man is not what he looks. He tried to escape. I imagined Dad running like a rabbit. I had never seen him act frantically or intimidated by anything. It was an incredible picture that I must face. My father escaping at gunpoint across the field. I saw him stumble, then try to get back on his feet, fumbling desperately for his eyeglasses. I saw him seized by despair, shaken to the core of his being, his survival instinct jerked wildly to claw at his defeating 
freedom. But in mom's stoic demeanor, all I saw was still. It was her turn to be the family's leader. And I would uh, stop here. I'm speechless. No one can make me speechless. And you just made me speechless. I'm a little teary-eyed right now. Thank you for reading that. I think um, your voice is beautiful. I want to read some of the comments. Um, Peng Li, Hai Hong Mi, your book is very well written. Kimoni and Lee, being here for you, very proud of you, Hung. Um, your sister is here, Trong. Cindy Nessinger said this should be a movie. It is very a very powerful story of survival. You are a great writer. And we have more goosebumps. Beautiful. Your mother was steel. Um, I just think that um, hearing you read it, um, that's one of my favorite parts of your book. And the, the thing that really struck me is how much you and I still have in common. And we come from so many different places, but we both have almost the exact line in our piece, which was our fathers were not intimidated by anyone. And I, I just, it just strikes me that they're probably looking down on us, right? <laughs> he was always, always around me. And uh, that's what I was telling everybody. He dropped little messages uh, now and then. His name was Paul. And uh, one day I just found a glove with the name Paul on it. And nobody at home uh, wear uh, gloves with the name Paul. And I even asked my kids that, uh, did any of your friend named Paul stopping by? And no one, no one. My dad just has his way to show me that he's still around. And uh, I believe the uh, birth of this book is uh, through his doing because it happened uh, about uh, 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 about five years after his death. Wow. Yeah. Mine, similarly, I started writing right after my father died. Um, the first story of my book is about him passing the day he passed. And I had to be the one to let the paramedics let him go. Mm -hmm. um, so I... Uh, but thank you for reading that. Oh, that was so good. Um, what about your, so your, your parents, your mother and your father, they're two of the key figures in your book, along with some of your siblings and some of your other relatives and the, the city of uh, the, the country of Vietnam, obviously is its own character. Um, how did, uh, what was it like writing your parents? You said about your dad, was it harder to write your mom? Was there a difference in writing the two characters? Uh, well, they were uh, two different people. So, but I think I knew my parents uh, well, especially during that period when I lived uh, with them uh, very uh, in a intimate um, uh, atmosphere. And mm -hmm. um, I, I always uh, hear them speak uh, and advise. And um, so to recreate uh, them in my book, uh, was not at all uh, difficult. Yeah. My, my, yes, my dad and mom uh, live uh, in us. And sometimes I do sound like my mom and sometimes <laughs> I do sound like my dad. Um, yes, so I believe I knew them well enough. Uh, and that had helped me uh, very much when I tried to portray them. Uh, 
Yeah, we're all more like our parents than we ever want to admit. I'm just like my dad. I'd love to drink and smoke and go to a casino. And I'm just like my mom. I love to yell and scream at my husband. And I, I can, you know, take debts down in a little ledger for him. Um, but yeah, so um, let's talk about uh, music as part of your book. Uh, your family bought a piano, even in the midst of all this chaos and crisis. You were able to find a piano and bring some music in. How has music inspired you in your writing? Um, music was, uh, I believe my father's side uh, was very musical uh, without a uh uh, former training, uh, they were able, all of my uncles were able to pick up any instruments uh, from classical instruments to modern instruments, guitar, violins, cello, accordion, everything that, that they can pick up and uh, and play. And uh, actually, I am not sure if I have written these in behind the red curtain due to the limitation of uh, the word counts, and I uh, may I, might have cut out that chapter. Mm. But uh, my fa- my father's family uh, was uh, able to survive their um, depression years uh, because of their uh, talents in uh, music and in entertainment. Um, they their profession did not help them during those times to make a living, but uh, they part of forming a band and oh. uh, yes and one of them just act as if they were professional manager and <laughs> show up at a place called uh, Le Coq d'Or which uh, translated as the golden uh, rooster uh, the place uh, where uh, uh, people uh, hire uh, bands uh, to uh, entertain um, French people and they show up uh, and said, we are, uh, we, we are a, a group of musicians and we will entertain you well. And they pay for them, uh, handsomely and they pay and they play. And that's how they were able to bought their first home in Hanoi, uh, at, uh, 46 Bellier Street, which, which my dad, uh, had such fond memory that my own home that I described in behind the red curtain, uh, in Tan Sa Chau, uh, that home was actually uh, built after that first home uh, my dad's family bought together in Hanoi. Oh, so interesting. What You have a, a whole nother book here, I think. <laughs> um, we had a question from Cindy. She asked whether you have PS- PTSD from the trauma of being imprisoned. Is that something you've dealt with, had therapy for, or kind of, you know, marinated on whether, you know, that trauma has stayed with you or was writing a healing process? Um, well, we Vietnamese do not understand therapy and psychology. <laughs> and <laughs> we do not have the, the understanding of that. And uh, I don't, I think that uh, to me, uh, it, the, the book has been uh, helpful in uh, exercising uh, that p- painful past. And um, it has helped me to uh, let go, let go of that. And because uh, all those nagging questions, why did my pen uh, be smart enough to pick up and go like everybody else? Uh, why did why all the connection did not materialize? Uh, 
Yeah. Um, I did the, uh, the SO where my dad will abandon our family. Yeah. Uh, all those nagging questions. Why did my, my dad's friends who were able to escape be- way long before the communists uh, took over did not alert him? So yeah. all those questions uh, and a little bit of sadness were let go after I uh, finished my book. And right. um, uh, I used to have this uh, recurring uh, dream that it was uh, snatched back and put back in jail. Uh, and since the book uh, was written, uh, I did not have that dream anymore. So I believe uh, it has been helpful. Definitely, definitely. You know, because it's easy to say, looking back, your parents should have done this. You're, pr- you're yelling at the book, go, go, go now. But no one knew. If you're an optimist, here in America, even we've dealt with this, where we think, how bad can it get? Right. And no one knows the worst that can happen until it happens. And so I think I had a lot of empathy for your parents because they did try to go, but it was just a smidgen too late, you know, through no fault of their own. They were just optimistic. Um, We have some more comments that I wanted to read. Um, Your mom was steel. Frank said, uh, seeing you wear orange warms my heart. Dear Hong, this is Francis Vasquez. You are amazing. I will buy your book soon. And everyone, um, real quick, Hong, can you tell people how to get your book? What's the best way? Where, where do you want them to go? Do you want them to go to Los Nietos Press? Do you want them to go to Amazon? Um, where should they go? Well, the least the least option is to try to enrich uh, Jeff Bezos. Uh, he's rich enough. Um, That's but, right. Uh, in the people who live outside the country have no other choice than okay. uh, Amazon. Uh, inside the country, uh, if we are in the south or, or any actually anywhere in the country, you can go to Los Nichols Press uh, store to get the book. If you want a signed book, that is the only place where you can get a signed book. And uh, that autograph book has been uh, extended because of the pandemic. Um, and uh, anywhere else, a local store, uh, if they have an online presence, you can order my book there. And thank you for asking, because I'm not good at uh, marketing for the book <laughs> and asking for people's uh money. <laughs> well, I am a master of marketing at this point. I'm going to tell everyone, buy Hong Mi's book. Thank buy you. this book, read it. You will not be able to put it down. Um, I, I have never had an experience like this where I just fell into a book. And maybe it's because we have so much in common. I just identified with this young narrator and with your family, but it was just beautifully written. And how did you write it? Uh, English is not your first language. You speak Vietnamese and French and English, obviously. But was that the biggest struggle to try to reconcile that? Um, Well, as I told you uh, before, um, I was possessed by this demon. I was haunted by the past after those questions pop up in an email exchange. And I uh, have this uh, nagging voice that dictate to me and say, you have to write this down before you forget it. And um, I did have uh, lots of issues with uh, the English syntax and articles and tenses, uh, but I put push it all aside and um, just write down. And where whenever a word, I could not find the right word, I uh, would just uh, write in a, a, 
a, a, what you call a replacement word or a word mm-hmm. in Vietnamese that I said I will look up later because wow. just let that muse come out. Just let the soy come out. Yes. Oh, so, I got goosebumps because that is everyone needs to listen to this. The best way to write is just sit your butt in the chair and write your story. Don't worry about tense. Don't worry about you can fix that later. Don't worry about punctuation. Don't worry about word choice. Get the story down. Right. 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 And uh, when I finished the first draft, it was to a colossus uh, 250,000 words. And uh, very badly written English and no of grammatical errors. But uh, with after 15 years working on it with lots of professional help uh, to clean up the book, uh, I was able to came uh, came up with the final product and in a in the in the acceptable 130,000 uh, words for a first memoir, which is acceptable. Well, I have to say it's so beautifully written. It is poetic. It's lyrical. It's perfect. There is, you would never, it's beautifully, perfectly written. It's your voice. Uh, Los Nietos did a great job um, at the cover art. It's such a beautiful, beautiful professional. Um, and then we, you have great blurbs from Ruth Nolan and uh, Victoria uh, Waddle, who are both Inland Empire writers. Um, who have their own books. And it just goes to show really quick. We have about five minutes. Um, we're going to do a quick giveaway. But um, could you also just talk really quick about your community of writers, what that meant to you? How was that? Uh, at the time uh, when I wrote uh, Behind the Red Curtain, I was uh, members of uh, at least three uh, writers club. I was with uh, the uh, California Writers Club in Inland Empire. Uh, I was also a uh, board member with uh, Whittier, the Writers Club of Whittier. Uh, and in both clubs, I attended their weekly uh, critic meetings. Also, I attended a night uh, writing classes offered by Inlandia. And that's where I met you. Uh, under the titulage of Ruth Nolan and uh, Joel Scarco. Uh-huh. So I, was, I am so, so grateful for all these uh, writers in my life. Uh, and they are like angels sent by God to help me through with this book. I always say the best part of being a writer is meeting other writers. It, it, it really is. We are a great community, especially here in the IE. We rock. We don't need LA. We don't need New York. <laughs> this is IE, Riverside, San Bernardino County Strong. So let's do our giveaway. And this trivia question was created by Han Mi. So if it's too hard, it's her fault. Okay. This trivia question, the winner will receive a copy of Hong Mi's book. What is the name? And put it in the comments, the first person who puts it in the comments. What is the name of the English author? With the 1955 war novel with a Vietnamese woman named Phong? Phu. Phu. Uh, say that? Phu. Phu. And um, <laughs> so what is the name of the author who wrote this book with the Vietnamese woman in it? And um, for a bonus point and a Life of Gem t-shirt, so you get a book and a t-shirt, what's the title of the novel? Give us the author. And that will get you Hong Mi's amazing book and give us the title and you can get a Life of Gem t-shirt too. <laughs> so um, I'll look at the comments and we'll do that later. But um, 
I just wanted to look at some, we had a couple questions and Aloha Henaveva. She's from Hawaii. She's watching us from Molokai. She's uh, one of my writing friends and I know she's probably loves your stuff. Um, Cindy is on there, says uh, great writing tips. Victoria is watching your friend. Victoria says, thanks for this discussion. Love the new info. And Men Lee said, do you plan to write another book? Oh my God. Do you know, uh, for do I answer this question? Do I have time to answer this question? You, you do. Know, yeah. It, 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 if it's like asking me after each childbirth, do you want to, to plan to have another child? And I would say, hell no, because it's, uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's too hard. And then right after that, you know, I'll be pregnant with another child. So uh, it's, I think it's the same with uh, this book. After 15 plus years of trying to write, to uh, edit and to publish it, I said, this is it. The book is out. It's done. I'm done with my job and uh, no more. Wow. And yet I already started thinking and, and, and also readers all, suggested that I could, I, I, I need to, uh, follow up with the, after, with the, in front of the behind, in front of the red curtain, because they want to see all those characters when they, uh, resettle re re in the, in their new life. So perhaps, uh, I, <laughs> It needs it needs a little bit push. <laughs> yeah, or you could take the words that you cut and turn that into a little uh, book of essays or something. But I want I do want to know what happened next. Frank McCourt, who's one of my favorite writers, who wrote Angela's Ashes. He ends Angela's Ashes coming from Ireland and seeing the Statue of Liberty, and then the next book is him being in New York City. So I would love to see you in. Um, Thailand or in France and then in America. And so please keep on writing and write us another book because we're going to be aching for it. So just a couple of things. Life of Jam will be back next month with the author of the book, Tracks, Memoirs from a Life in Music by Peter Churches. Uh, that's published by Bamboo Dart Press. Also, my book, Portrait of a Deputy Public Defender or How I Became a Punk Rock Lawyer, <laughs> is being released August 10th by Bamboo Dart. So go to my website or the Bamboo Dart Press for more information and go to the um, Hong Mi's website. It's on our banner. You can just put behind the red curtain into Yahoo and her website will pop up, which also links to Los Nietos Press. And you can buy her book, buy her book, buy her book, buy her book, please. I think we have a winner. Oh, we do? Oh, yay. Uh I saw it in there too. So we'll write that down. Uh, we'll figure that out. So Ge I, I know Genevieve, uh, it's up on the screen right now. Is it Andrea Nguyen? I think it's before her actually. Um, someone put um, a comment. Um, so we'll look at the comments and um, I'll be in contact about the book and the t-shirt because I think the person that got, got both answers right. I just wanted to say one more thing. Francis Vasquez says, Hong Mi, we first met in a group, Invisible Memoir. I was in that class too with Joe Scott Coe, uh, facilitated by Joe Scott Coe. Juanita was in the writing group. I'm so proud of you both. Aww. That was like 10 years ago. And here we are full circle, sitting <laughs> together virtually in a room and you are just amazing. So a lot, everyone, a lot of people want to see her book as a movie. Write the <laughs> script. Write the script. Come on. 
<laughs> you could pitch it because I think this would be, um, I, I had so many more questions for you, but one of the questions I had is this story is not told anywhere else that I know of a young girl's perspective about the fall of South Vietnam and being imprisoned during that with her family and trying to escape that regime. I have never seen that story. This is the most, one of the most amazing histories that I've ever uh, read if inside the book she also um, has pictures and uh, I love that because I love me a memoir that actually has some photo documentation and uh, there's a young Hong me in there <laughs> and on the back cover there's a picture of her as well and um, I just think it's such a beautiful testament to your history and I know your parents are proud so thank you Hong me for being on Thank you. And I would like to take a few minutes, if, if I may, uh, to thank, uh, first of all, you, the, uh, the, the creator of A Life of Gem and, uh, the author of upcoming book, uh, and also April Duran, who helped us, uh, behind the scene to put this produce, production together. I also would like to thank, uh, all my, uh, supporting, uh, people. Uh, uh, in the audience, and uh, uh, thank you, thank you for your presence tonight. I know it's a weeknight and everybody uh, is busy, yet you uh, are all here uh, to support both of us. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Life of Jim, but you are honestly a gem, a J E M gem. You're you're a treasure, Hong Mi, and I hope everyone reads your book. And I want to hear you read again. So I'm going to push you to do more events, do some readings at libraries, and I'll post them on the wall. So bye, everyone. Thank you for watching. I'll be back next month with Peter Churches, who wrote a book about music, tracks, a memoir of a life in music. Buy Hong Mi's book. Check out all of the books by Los Nietos Press. They're one of my favorite presses. Um, and, uh, you know, I know Frank very well. We have a project in store later. But, um there's Liz Gonzalez, Dancing in the Santa Ana Winds. Frank Kearns, who runs Los Nietos, he publishes the most amazing array of, of writers from Southern California. So check out his website, too. And thank you all for being here. Have a great day. Let's dance it out. You going to put on some music? Ah. <laughs>